Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 133. There's, we've finished the series on sowing and reaping, although we've not finished the principle. There's a message that's been on my heart today, and we're just going to end with a focus on a particular, particular issue. It has to do with changes, and we've been talking about changes for a while now. At least the changes are coming. And the idea of changes, at least that are in my heart, is to change anything that's not lined up with the way God does things. For so many years, church, not just this church, but most churches, we've, we have our traditions, our ways of doing things. And, you know, we, many of us have come out of churches with liturgies and, and, you know, prayer books and things like that where you come to church and you don't have to, you don't have to do anything. You just come and go through the routine and you leave feeling better because you came and went through the routine. And you did what somebody else designed, what somebody else discerned, what somebody else led. And we really have no participation. We know when to stand up, when to sit down, when to kneel, what songs to sing, what to say, what to do, you know, and just it's cut and dried. And so many of us have come out of that into something that looks and in many ways is much freer. There's the life of God here. There's the Spirit of God present. Not that the Spirit of God can't move in those other situations, but the Spirit of God's present and, and, and we're just, you know, we're free of all that and yet we establish our own traditions and our own way of doing things. We've just come out of a series where we've talked about the upside-down kingdom, and that's going to continue to be a theme in some way or another probably throughout much of the year because we're in the process of learning as a church, as individuals, to recognize the ways we've learned to do things that are not God's ways of doing them and the way we've learned to think about things because it's what we've been raised in, that's what we've been trained in. And what we've learned is that most of the time the ways we've been trained in, the ways we've learned are perversions of God's principles and God's ways of doing things. So we've got to be willing to look at them, examine them, and be willing to let go of them when we find out that God's way of doing something is different and is better because God's way is always better because God's way is always blessed. So much of the time what we do is we follow through our ways of doing things and then we try to get God to bless our way of doing things. I'll tell you the secret. There's a much better way. Find out God's way. It's already blessed. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Psalm 133. Such a short little psalm. Such a powerful little psalm. And we're not going to dwell on it because there's some other things to get into. But this is kind of our key this morning. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's not just unity, it's dwelling together in unity. You can dwell together but not be in unity. And you can be in unity and not dwell together. So it's dwelling together but dwelling in unity. And you'll see where that's leading in a little while. And when we do that, the psalmist says, it's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. Now, to most of us, that doesn't mean a whole lot. That kind of sounds yucky. You know, to me, pouring oil over somebody's head doesn't sound that thrilling. But in this day, first of all, understanding when it's Aaron, what it's referring to is when he was anointed by Moses and actually by God to be the high priest. God brought Moses up to the top of the mountain. God gave Moses a pattern for worship, which we're going to talk about later on in this year. God gave Moses a pattern for worship, how to construct something that was called the tabernacle, which was a place of worship. And it was a precursor. It was a preparation for the plan of salvation that you and I are the beneficiaries of. 
But then once he'd given him that instructions, he gave him instructions about not just how to construct the tabernacle, but what to, how to have a priest and a priesthood that would operate in that tabernacle. And he told him to take his brother Aaron and made special robes for him. And then once all of it was prepared, all, of, all the work was done, everything according to the pattern, it was still not enough. He says, take Aaron and I want you to take this special oil, the holy anointing oil, and pour it over his head. Now, the oil represents an anointing of God. And we don't have time this morning to get off into how and why that is. Just, just trust that it does. So when it talks about the oil coming down over Aaron's hair and his beard and down over his robes, it's talking about the anointing of God coming down on us. The, the anointing is like warm oil coming down. It soothes, it heals, it empowers. It, it get, what is, one of the things why you've got to change your oil in your car what does it do? It makes it, it alleviates the abrasions, the, the, the functioning, the rubbing that takes place in your engine by the parts rubbing together. The oil is necessary so that it doesn't get create heat. Oh, we'll go there today. So it doesn't create heat and friction, which causes it the whole engine to seize up and to break down. So that requires oil, doesn't it? To change your oil regularly. Everybody said, "Amen." <laughs> Because if you just say, I don't like that principle, I'm not going to do it, guess what? You'll get along for a while, but there's going to come a day you went out to start your car, and it's not going to cooperate with you because you didn't cooperate with it. So the oil represents the anointing of God coming down over Aaron to anoint him to be high priest. He was called to be high priest. He was dressed by God to be high priest. But until that anointing came upon him, he didn't have God's ability to function in it. And this church has been called and equipped and is being prepared by God to do a function. But we can have all the programs, all the people, all the right equipment, everything in order. But without the anointing, we are not able to do the work of God. And so what this is teaching us is that anointing cannot truly flow unless the brethren are dwelling together in unity. Dwelling together and dwelling together in Unity. Verse 3. It's like the dew of Hermon. Hermon's not a person, it's a mountain. About 9,200 feet high up in the very northern part of Israel. And it was known because, because it was so high that the dew would settle up there and run down, come down the mountain. It was made of limestone and that would come down and it would help fertilize the ground that was south of there, even down to Mount Zion, which is, represents Jerusalem. So that mountain, by the way the dew would settle on it and would moisten the soil, and the soil would come down off of that, it would, it would, it, this, so this represents God's watering the land so that it becomes fertile. It's like the dew of Hermon descending from the mountains of Zion, for there, look at this, there, not on Mount Zion, there, where the brethren dwell together in unity. Look at this. There the Lord has commanded the blessing and life forevermore. Psalm 23 ends with this wonderful verse. Surely mercy and goodness will follow me all the days of my life. Most of us are out there trying to find mercy and goodness. Most of us, many of you have been studying and you know, there are all kinds of preachers on the radio teaching you about getting the blessing. You don't have to go after it. If you just dwell together in unity, God's commanded it there. 
See, when we do things God's way, God moves on our behalf. It's when we do things our way, God has to find ways to try to help us. But when you do it His way, He's commanded things to happen on your behalf. So where we dwell together in unity, dwell together and together in unity, God has commanded His blessing. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about unity, but in a little different perspective. Go with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul to the churches at Corinth, the southern part of Greece. And this is a church that is, we've talked about this before, was flowing abundantly in spiritual gifts. I mean, all the outward things that you see in churches, charismatic churches, the prophecy and the, and the speaking in tongues, and, and, and there were miracles taking place, and wonderful operations of the Spirit of God, dramatic demonstrations of the power and the love and the nature of God were taking place regularly and powerfully in that service, in their services. And the result of which is they became pretty impressed with how spiritual they were. And word had gotten back to the Apostle Paul about this church. See, we tend to look at the outside to discern where things are. God looks at the inside to discern where we are. I was thinking about this, you know, I was trying to get my tie just right as I was getting ready, and you'd go, like that second look at your hair, and make sure everything's just in the right place, you know. And, you know, and, and, and I began to realize, you know, we spend a lot of time on getting ready on Sunday to make sure we look nice on the outside. And God's not paying attention to the outside. While we're doing all that, we may be taking our, you know, want to take your spouse's head off or something. I oh, didn't do that this morning. But I mean, want to, you know, we're mad at somebody or we're upset. Now somebody didn't sit in my seat today. I'll get my tie just right. And God's not so impressed with whether your tie's straight as he is impressed with whether this is attitude in here. And that's where this church was. So they thought they were, you know, they thought they were spiritually something. And Paul has to write this letter to them to correct them because they weren't looking at things in God's eyes. They were looking at spiritual things through man's eyes. Now we've learned that the kingdom of God operates on principles. And we've learned that our world is saturated with perversions of those principles, where the devil's taken those principles and turned them upside down. We just talked about sowing and reaping. It's one of the examples of that. Here's another example. We're going to get into much more this morning. So here in the church of Corinth, Paul's writing to them, and we're going to pick up here in verse uh, 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions or factions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together, oh, here we are again, of the same mind, that you be together and you're joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that God, Paul was saying you've got to agree on everything. You know, you don't have to agree on everything and still be of the same mind towards Him, of who we are. On the other hand, you can agree on everything and not be of the same mind. 
You can just agree to be disagreeable. All right. Now look what he gets into. Perfectly joined together the same mind of the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions or quarrels among you. In other words, there's strife in the house. Disagreements. Not doctrinal. And this was the division. Now I say this to each of you who says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, that was Peter, or I'm of Christ. And what's happening is, this church was being divided into cliques. That's the term we'd use today. Factions that were, that were collected together around their fra- favorite teacher. And so they were coming together saying, now, in some cases, Apollos was a very gifted teacher who came, Paul came and founded this church. A little later on, Apollos comes, who is an anointed teacher, and he, because Paul in chapter 3 talks about, I watered, I planted, and Apollos watered. So, So Apollos comes through, and with a different gifting, a different ministry, and adds to what Paul has deposited there. Cephas refers to the apostle Peter. So he's saying that, you know, you're divided into groups by whom you are aligned with. So some of you see me as your favorite preacher, so you're a Paul. And you have got others that think that, oh, Apollos was hot stuff when he was here, so we really like Apollos. And so others, you know, Peter, I've got read his writings, and I've heard of Peter, you know, he's the one I like. Or I'm of Christ. Now look at what he says here. Because we're not, here we're talking about, understand, this is so important that you get the spirit of what we're saying this morning. Don't listen for, oh, we got to do this or don't do that, because you'll miss the spirit of it. God wants to take this morning, and this is what I'm trusting Him for, God wants to show us we've been looking at all kinds of things through the wrong eyes, through the eyes we were trained in over here in the world. And that's what's happening here, because these rules here are to collect ourselves together based on things that are comfortable with us. Let me just stop for a minute and explain that because that's really the essence of what we're talking about this morning. What we would call human nature is we tend to gravitate towards people and things that, are more, that, are, that we have in common with. So we want to hang out with people that are the same age, roughly, because we can understand them and they can understand us. Human nature, it's not what happens so much here, but sometimes it does. But human nature is we want to hang out with people that look similar to us on the outside. So we're more comfortable gathering around people who may have the same color paint on their house that we do. Skin color. Because you know your, your body's just a house that you live in. We drive through our neighborhood and our neighborhood houses, has houses of all different kinds of colors. Paint jobs. Doesn't get me upset. Because they're different, they're just, they're houses, right? Some are bigger and some are smaller. They're just houses people live in. That's all your body is. That's all our body is, is a house we live in. And yet in our society and in the world, we segregate and judge and, 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 and associate with based on the color of your house, the paint job on your house, your physical house. Because that's all it really is. Or the age of the house. 
There's some houses in our community that are younger, that are younger than other houses. I, but they're all in our community. So what we've done is this. What the world teaches us to do, and I'll explain in a why why we, we like to do this, is to associate around people that have, we have things in common with. Age, color, nationality, uh, uh, interests. So we have, you know, dog lovers like to hang out with dog lovers. We, and, and the reason we do that is because it's easier. Because if I'm around people that like the things I like, there's not going to be friction there generally. Why? Because we all understand each other. I'm hitting that stage of life where I am age-wise more mature, let's put it that way, than I used to be. (laughs) We had our grandchildren that live here for two days and one night. And when I'm out in the outside yesterday running around playing chase with them, I discover there's a difference between their bodies and mine. <laughs> Especially this morning. <laughs> but it's fun. Yeah. All right? So how, I, I can't say, well, you know, you're nine and you're eight and you want to go out and run around and you guys don't understand I'm important. I'm the pastor of the church. I have to preach tomorrow. I've got you know, two hours on my feet of giving everything that's in me, which energy-wise is about eight hours worth of work. And I said, you, but you don't, they don't understand that. So I have to adjust to where they are because I want to be with them and enjoy being with them. And I had to make a conscious effort yesterday. I'm thinking, oh, I'm already tired. Come into this week. I've had a busy week. And now, that, Papa, can we go out and play? Can we go out and play? Oh, you don't understand. Papa's tired. Papa wants to read his Bible. Papa's got to... And I just, I made the choice. Yes, I'm going to go out and play with you. Had fun. It was wonderful. But my point is, there's, you get to a, 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 an age of life when you, you know, it's easy to talk about, oh, it's getting so hard. And other people are the same age. Yeah, it's getting so hard. Oh, yeah, it's getting so hard to get out of bed in the morning. It's getting so hard. I can't do the thing. Yes, I can't do the thing. And so we collect around each other our complaints because we all, quote, unquote, understand each other. We collect around people with the same interests. We collect around people, again, with the same color. Because when we're around people that are like us, it's easier. We don't have to make adjustments. Ooh. But that's the principle that the world operates on. Whatever is easier. Whatever feels better. Whatever, whatever is kind of natural to your flow. Jesus talked about that in Matthew chapter 7. He says there's two paths in life. There's this path over here that's nice and broad and easy and there's really no opposition. Everybody's going to agree with you as you go down this path and it's a wonderful path. There's no challenges to it. Oh yeah, there's small things but I mean everybody going down this path is going to agree with you and there's nobody going to oppose you really and the only problem with this path is where it heads. It leads to destruction. Jesus said there's another path. The problem is it's narrow. Not a lot of people choose it. 
you may have to leave some things behind to go down this path because it's kind of narrow. There's opposition going down this path. It's not a popular path. So you're not going to get a lot of people coming down this path saying, oh boy, isn't this fun. The only thing is this leads to eternal life. So Jesus is teaching us, don't judge the path that you're going down by how easy it is. See, if you don't understand this, you'll automatically flow into this path because it's easier and you won't even think about it because it's where everybody else is headed. It takes a conscious effort to go down this path. It takes a conscious effort to do things that may be harder, may be alone in them. It may not seem easy. It may not be where everybody else is going. It takes a conscious effort to go down this path. And this is not just true in whether you come to Christ or not. It's true in terms of how you live your life for Him and how we live our life together as a church. The easy road is to do things the way we've always done them, the way the world does them. But God's beginning to teach me to compare with the way we do things with the way He does things. Because the way He does things, He's commanded His blessings. And so it's, it's, our, it's human nature. It's this world's way of looking at things to do things by what are the easiest way and the, one of the easiest ways is to do things with people that have everything in common with you. The problem with that is when we do that, we don't grow. I found in life, I grow more through challenges than I do through the easy times. So if all you do is hang around people that you have everything in common with and like everything you like and want to do everything you want to do when you want to do it, you're not going to grow because you're never going to have to learn how to agree with somebody that doesn't agree with you. Ever notice how so often God puts couples together that are the opposite of each other? I mean, just the fact that they're male and female. They are male and female, right? They are. And we say, yes, amen, they are. That's God's way. Oh, I can't go there too far because we'll get off in it. But see, again, Satan's way is to combine things together that have everything in common. God's way is to take things that in many ways look like they're the opposite and fit them together. So he takes a man who sees things rationally in compartments, focused, task-oriented. We go to the store, we go to get something that's on the list, and we come home with a thing on the list, and we, we brought, our, we brought our, our, you know, our, 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 we, our hunting trip was successful. We brought it home to the, to the woman, and here it is. Women go shopping. It's an experience. Therapy. I'm still trying to figure out what it is. I just know you smile and you enjoy it, and you know, and you, you know. It's so it's a and so God puts together people that don't see things the same way. I mean, men and women literally do not see things. You can put a man and a woman in a room and say, "What is here?" and they'll come out with two very different things because they physically don't process things the same way in their brain. And God puts them together? Is he cruel? Is he just having fun watching us trying to work this out? Well, no, that's not what God's like. So God must have a better reason 
a better way that's different than the world's way. God must have a better way. He must know that there's an opportunity by putting you together with someone that's different than you that's good for you. And that's changed, began to change our marriage, at least from my perspective. When God finally got through to me, I took her different way of looking at things. Because I've shared with you before, I was, God, I've been trying for years to get her to understand this is the way way you're supposed to think. And he spoke to me as clearly as I've ever heard it. He says, she doesn't think that way. I said, I know that. He said, then she never will. (laughs) And then he really hit it. Because I didn't make her to think like you did. That shocked me because I thought the way I thought was what everybody should think. They just haven't figured it out yet. (laughs) Ah, This is where I was. But see, this is where so many of us are. I'm assuming I'm right. She's assuming she's right. There's a recipe for strife. Until you learn to recognize, I had to recognize, and I'm still doing it, that she has things she sees I need. Years ago, we used to do a teaching on marriage, and we would stand back to back in a room and, and talk about what we saw in the room. And I don't remember which one of us would see, but one of us would see the door and the other would see a painting. And we get into this argument about what was in the room based on what we saw. And pretty soon the class starts laughing because they can see both sides where all we see is one. And I'm adamant because I know what I see. I see a camera. I see a a light over here. I see a door with exit over here. She's standing here seeing. There's no camera. What are you talking about a camera? And then we make the point I see clearly what I can see. But there's more to this picture than what I see, and that's the part she sees. Which means I need what she can see that I can't see. Your body understands this principle because God gave you two eyes and two ears for a reason. You understand that your eyes don't see. Looking at me right now, your left eye and your right eye are not seeing exactly the same thing. You're seeing me from a slightly different point of view. Your left ear and your right ear don't hear the same thing. I'll never forget, this is really going to date me. The first time I ever heard a stereo play, some kids were like, what? (laughs) My uncle had a stereo, and he had a symphony on, and I put the earphones on, and oh my goodness, it was like the orchestra was in my head. And what I had to understand is they recorded several different tracks from different perspectives, different points of view. And then they p- recorded them, and on the, on the, it's really Dave, on the, on the record, it was a record, a vinyl record, <laughs> they were recorded, both of those tracks were recorded, and so my left ear heard the left track from the left side of the orchestra, my right ear heard the right track from the right side of the orchestra, and my brain didn't get in a fight about which was right. right. My brain didn't argue and say, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm hearing what's right. No, 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 no. There are, there are violins, violas, there's string instruments. No, 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 no. There's trumpets and there's drums. And no, my brain just took the differences 
and blend them together and you got depth of sound. Your eyes take two different perspectives, see two different things, the same thing from two different angles, and they don't get your brain doesn't get an argument about what you're seeing. It blends them together and you get depth of field. So maturity in the kingdom of God is learning to take our differences and bring them together and get greater depth of experience. In the world system, you take those differences and they divide us. We fight over it. We form a legislature around it. To the point that they can't get anything done. That they're no longer concerned about what's best for the nation. They're concerned about their position. That's where a lot of marriages are. So God takes our differences. And if we'll allow Him, He'll blend them together to, so we can grow and mature. You have a comfort zone. And by and large, what we do is we include things we like inside the comfort zone. People that make us comfortable, people that make us feel better, situations that make us comfortable. And it's when we start getting confronted with things outside that comfort zone, we get uncomfortable. And maturing is learning to handle the things that are uncomfortable that are going to make us grow. Immaturity is saying, no, I don't want to take anything that's uncomfortable for me. That means I want to stay where I am. And so God will not allow you to do that because He loves you. He's a good Father. He will confront your life, bring people into your life, situations into your life that are contrary to the way you think, contrary to the way you like, that you don't want to handle the situation, and God will bring things into your life. I'm not talking about sickness and disease. I'm talking about people. (laughs) Situations where it's uncomfortable to you because it's your opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to grow. So that's what's going on here in the church of Corinth that, God's dealing, that Paul is dealing with here, God is dealing with through him. Let's go on now. Let's go on to, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's still really dealing with the same issue over here. So again, under the world system, we're, we connect ourselves together with situations and with people that are like us because we can understand them. They make us feel comfortable. Because in most of our cases, our goal in life is to be as secure and comfortable as we can. But you understand security and comfort is probably going to keep you from growing. I'm not saying we should run, live insecure. But when your goal in life is to be secure and comfortable, you probably won't accomplish much. Most of the great men and women of God that accomplished great things for God did not do it because they stayed where they were secure and they were comfortable. Some of you are wrestling with whether to go on that missions trip. And the issue is whether I I want to be safe and secure and comfortable. And you'll find that when you're willing... I'm not talking about doing crazy things. But when you're willing to step out of that comfort zone, that's where the place of growth occurs. So you've got to decide what are you really looking for in life? To grow and mature in Christ, to be all that God's called you to be, or to be safe and secure? Just remember, we'll all give an accounting for what we did with the life that God entrusted to us. And I'm going to stand before Him and say, God, I stayed safe and secure. 
That's just like the third servant that the talent was given to. And he said, what did I do? What'd you do with it? Oh, hey, I kept it safe and secure. Buried it and stuck it in the ground. He was not pleased with that. The safety and security that God's provider for us is when we leave here. Now, I'm not talking about taking, you know, getting out on the highway and doing crazy things. I'm talking about being willing to step outside, changing the goal of your life from getting my security, getting my comfort in my life. I can't wait to get to the end of my life where I've got savings stayed up, I've got a pension, and I can just go sit in Florida and be comfortable and secure the rest of my life. That's probably not why God called you to be here. I'm not saying it's wrong. If that's your goal in life, your goal is based on this principle. And isn't all the world focused on that? I can't wait till I retire. I can't wait till I have a I can't wait till I don't have a job. I can't wait till all this stuff. And many people there are not satisfied. They're not comfortable. They're not where they thought they were. They were sold a bill of goods. All right, we got to move on. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Well, verse 15 says, For he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. They should live for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, as a result of the fact that he came and died for us, verse 16 says, From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. He's talking about how we look at each other. How we evaluate who each other is here at Faith Christian Center. Not just that, but how we value each other in terms of who we associate with and who we're willing to be involved with and whom, how we respect each other. From now on, we regard one another no longer according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, we know Him thus no longer. In other words, there was a time when what we knew of Jesus was He was physically living among us and we could see His hair and touch His hair We could see his clothes. We could see his robes. We could look into his eyes and see his eyes. We could see the the color of his skin and his fingernails. We could physically know that Jesus was with us because we could see him with our natural senses. There was a time when we knew him that way. But Paul's saying, that's now changed. We don't know him that way anymore, apart from something supernatural like the beginning of the book of Revelation when Jesus appeared to the apostle John. But other than that, we don't know him that way. And yet we can know him. In other words, Paul was saying when Christ was raised from the dead, the way we relate to him changed. We no longer relate to him based on outward appearances. But we now have a relationship with him, not based on a picture on a wall, or not based on some statue on my my dashboard, not based on an image I have in my mind, but a relationship I have with him spirit to spirit, because he's now spirit being. And that's a more real relationship. Because Jesus told his disciples before he left, it's to your advantage that I'm going. In other words, the way you've known me now is fine, but what's going to change is going to be better for you than the way you've known me now. Now, I'm sure they didn't understand that. You talk about being uncomfortable. You talk about getting outside your your comfort zone. They had Jesus living among them. They didn't have to operate by faith. They just reached over and looked at him. Say, walk with me, you know, I'm walking with the Lord. They could tell whether they were, they could look in front of them, and there he was. No faith involved at all in terms of whether I'm, oh, I don't feel his presence. You can just touch him. No faith in that. They judged whether he was with them or not by whether they could see him or touch him. 
And Jesus is telling them, this has got to change. Oh, we don't want change. But we don't grow unless we change. This has got to change. And then he said this thing I'm sure they couldn't understand. It's to your advantage that it's going to change. What could be better than having you with us? It must have bothered them because then he said, don't be troubled. So obviously they were troubled by the change. But God knows better. His ways are higher than our ways, not lower or equal with our ways. And he's, Jesus is trying to train them to think in his terms, not the terms they've been trained in. They've been trained to think in terms of what they have with them right now is better than anything else. And Jesus said, you're going to have to let go of what you have in order to get what I have for you, because what I have for you, the way I relate to you, is going to be better. And then he explained to them why. He said, because the Spirit has been here with you in me, Jesus said. That's been good. You've enjoyed the presence of the Holy Spirit in me. But because I leave, He's not just going to be with you. He's now going to be in you. So Jesus is saying, My Father's bringing a change about the way you relate to me, and it's going to cause you to have to relate to me in a different way, which should seem uncomfortable to you now. But trust me, it's going to be better than what you have now. And now he's, that's what he means in here, in verse 16. And now he's going to bring it to them, which is bringing it to us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all these new things are of God. So what's, how do they connect together? Paul's not talking so much here about how we relate to Jesus. He's using that as an example about how they relate to each other. He says, just as the way we relate to Jesus has changed, we don't look at him according to outward now. We relate to him spirit to spirit, what's on the inside. In the same way, you're no longer to regard each other based on the outside. Look at this word. I've taught you this before. First first word of verse 17. Therefore. Therefore means what he's about to say is based on what he just said. What he just said is there's a change in how we relate to Jesus. Now he's about to say you need to bring that same change over into how you see each other. If anyone's in Christ, this is how we're to see each other, he's a new creature. All things have passed away, and all things have become new. In other words, we're no longer to regard each other in terms of how we evaluate each other, what we mean to one another, how well we can relate to one another. We're no longer to evaluate one another based on the outward appearance, the things we were talking about, the color of the house, age, background, Whatever, anything that's outward, we're not to regard that in terms of how we can relate to each other. Then what are we regard? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. All things inside have become new. And those new things are of God. All right.
Let's see it how God sees us. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Start in verse 11. Therefore remember that you, talking to the church at Ephesus, they were were Gentiles, that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, what's the flesh? It's the outer man. Gentiles meant that they had no covenant with God. They weren't Jews. They weren't raised with Jews. The Jews were raised under the covenant with God of Abraham, and and, and the the covenant meant that, that they belonged to God. They were God's people. Understand this. God's the creator of all, but He's not the God of all. Because he said, I will be a God to you. God's responsible for, provides for, protects. He is God of all, but he's not God to all. God of all because he created all. But he's only God to those he's entered into a relationship with. And so the Jews were very conscious of the Gentiles. They were outside the covenant of God. They had no covenant basis for a relationship with God. You understand, you cannot have a relationship with God unless there's a legal basis for it, because He's God. He's not obligated to do anything. He's holy, He's perfect, He's never sinned, He's majestic, and we've all sinned, we're not holy, and we're very unmajestic. All of us. I don't care how good you are. So none of us have a right to come before God unless God has given us that right legally. And under the covenant, God had provided a way so that the nation of Israel, born out of Abraham, had a right to come into a relationship with God. And they'd become very proud of that to the point that they were proud that they had a covenant with God and the Gentiles didn't. Separation. And so Paul's reminding them that at one time, they were Gentiles outside the covenant relationship with God. You're once Gentiles in the flesh, the outer appearance, who are called the uncircumcised by that which is the circumcision, that's Jude, made with the flesh of the hands. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. That means the community of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise, having, look at this, no hope, and without God in this world. But in Christ Jesus, you who are once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, look at this, who has made both, that's Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, that was the Gentiles, and to those who were near. And through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. 
Therefore, we are no longer strangers and foreigners, but we are fellow or joint citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Let's go to chapter 4, which we spent so much time in a couple of years ago. I therefore, there we go again, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He just talked about that calling. With all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, we've talked about this before. Notice if you're going to keep something, that implies you already have it and someone's trying to take it away from you. So this unity is not something that we're supposed to attain. It's something we've already been given. And we have to be on guard. We don't give it away. Very important difference. And what is that unity? The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Have you ever had this experience? I did. I remember I have it regularly, but I, but I was so startling when I was first saved is you go somewhere and you meet somebody and you discover they're a Christian. And I discovered immediately I feel closer to them than people I've known my whole life. And what is going on here? Why? Because what I've discovered is there's somebody who also has the same spirit in them I have in me. The unity of the spirit means the same spirit that lives in me is the same spirit that lives in you. It's not... There's not a Pastor John spirit and an Anita spirit and a Ron Blaine spirit. There's one spirit. There's not a spirit that was in Jesus that's different than you and me. That's how we're joined to Him. It's the same spirit. See, this is why we don't regard each other according to the flesh anymore. How do we regard each other? The same spirit is in you that's in me. That's how we became alive under Christ. That's what we have in common now. Not our outward house. Not the color of the house, the size of the house, the age of the house, not even where the house is located. What we have in common is the life that's on the inside. What we have in common now, what we're to learn to regard, what God's way of looking at things is not the outer shell. God's way of looking at things is what's on the inside. Who's alive on the inside? And if these spirits alive on the inside, then we are all one. Satan works hard to get us into this way of thinking is to look at each other based on the outward. So, well, I can't fellowship with them because I don't look like them. We don't believe exactly the same things. We don't do this, that. We don't do this. So there's separations he creates. Why? He wants us to keep us conscious of the outward man and no longer of the inner thing that we have in common, the inner one that we have in common. Now, we're headed somewhere with this. For there is, verse 4, one body. There is one spirit. And you are all called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all, in you all. But to each one of us, a grace was given according to the measure of Christ. He's going to go on and talk about that grace. The grace is giftings God's given you. Abilities God's given you. Those 
giftings and those abilities are to serve in the body, not to identify the body. And we use our differences as a ways of identifying one another instead of as what God's given us to serve one another. So we evaluate people by their gifts and talents. Well, they're better than I because they got more gifts than I. No, that's just something God equipped them with so that they could take their place in the body. What we have in common is the same spirit. We're all part of the same body. Now, John in verse 16, he talks about this, and this is why this is so critical. Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, from whom the whole body, that's the head, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part of the body does its share, and the result is it causes the growth of the body for the edifying or buildings of itself in love. This is not a physical building up. This is not an emotional building up. It is a spiritual building up. Each part of your body, I'm not going to have a chance to go there this morning, but in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, he talks about, to teach this principle, he goes to look at something we're all familiar with, that, that's our own body. He says your body has many different members, pieces, parts of it. You've got eyes and ears and hair and some of us have more of that than others. Uh, uh, you know, toes, toenails. There's different types of cells in your body. And they're made differently. Aren't you glad that your fingernail cells are not made like the cells that your lips or your tongue's made with. So that when you go to trim your fingernails, imagine if that felt the same way it felt. See, your, your fingernails have no feeling to them. So they're made differently, aren't they? So they're tougher. They don't have feeling to them because they're designed to protect the ends of your fingers and your toes. But the, 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 the cells that are on the inside of your mouth are made to be very sensitive They're full of nerve endings because they need to discern all kinds of things. So they're very different. So Paul is saying, would your, would, your, would, the, would your tongue and your taste buds judge your fingernails because they're not sensitive? Paul, what kind, of, what kind of body cell are you? You can't even feel, you can't even feel what's touching you. It has a different purpose a different role. And Paul says, just because you've got differences, the differences, and listen to me carefully, the differences that God builds in us are differences of function. Because they're all cells of my body. The fingernail cells and the cells on the tip of my tongue are all part of my body. If I hit my thumb with a hammer, my mind and my mouth aren't saying, what a stupid thumb you are to get in the way. You know, poor you, you're just going to have to suffer. No, I hit my thumb. And everything in my body is on alert now to protect. And I did. The other couple of weeks ago, I told you, I cut my finger there. 
And she was, my wife was there. I was all over the place, immediately putting pressure from the, the competing hand. Oh, this is my chance to shine now. Woo, I got a chance to shine now because that idiot cut that finger and this is healthy and well. I can now point. I can do all kinds of... No, immediately this hand surrounds this one and does what's necessary to stop the bleeding because my body does not have a concept of separate parts that just happen to be in the same location. It's one body built differently, different parts to function together, but it all comes with how we see it. James chapter 2, we're not going to have a chance to go there. James talks about God hates partiality. These people have nice clothes and they give nice offerings, so we've got a place of honor for them down front, but the guys that don't dress quite so well, therefore they, don't have, they can't contribute as much money, they get to sit in the back, and God's offended by that. Why? Because it's one body. In Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about, you know, you've got some parts of your body that seem unseemly. That means they don't look that important. But they are very important in the functioning of the body. So where are we headed with this? God's begun to open my eyes to ways we've built walls in this church and many other churches based on the world's way of analyzing things. And we've assumed we bought the assumption of the world that that's the correct way of looking at it. So what we've done in church is we've taken different age groups, different interest groups, and separated them. Because they can understand each other better. And the result is we've collect people around common interests who now we understand it's not going to help them to grow. It's going to help them to feel comfortable in church. We're so concerned with people feeling comfortable in church, we have weak, anemic churches that don't know how to grow and stand up and do what they're supposed to do. So here's what God began to show. And there are many other areas we can apply this and probably will. And I'm not saying it's wrong to associate with people. Don't make a law out of this. I'm saying begin to look at things not so much in terms of what am I comfortable with and what do I have in common with, but who has God joined me together because it's what each part does. You understand that your fingers aren't built the same way your hand is, but they have to work together. They're joined together. Who has God joined you with here that may be different than you are, that you're having trouble working with because they're not like you, or you don't see things the same way they do? One of the biggest areas God showed me is how we see children and our youth. And God had to deal with me about this. Because the world tells us, because in, in our natural growing, with our bodies and with our emotional life, there's a process of growing and maturing. So a two-year-old doesn't understand what a 22-year-old understands. A two-year-old can't do what a 22-year-old can't do in the natural world. But spiritually, it's not the same thing. In, in Isaiah 11, Jesus said, In that day, a little child will lead them. In Joel chapter 2, which Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost, a tremendous day of unity, outpouring of the Spirit, he says, In that day when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh, that day's come. Your young men 
will see visions and your old man will dream dreams or it's the other way around, whichever way it is. In other words, the point is this. We think because of the way the world's trained us, because our children and our, young, our youth are not as physically or emotionally as mature as we think they should be, and for some, in some cases they're not, that that doesn't mean they can't be spiritually sensitive and that God, they don't have a value in the kingdom of God that we can learn things from. So what we've done is we've relegated them. to. We, see, we come into the real service and we've relegated them to other classrooms because they can't learn here because they're not as sophisticated as we are. It's interesting because the disciples had the same attitude because for some reason the children wanted to be around Jesus. And so the disciples said, no, no, you need to be in children's church. You're not mature enough to be around him directly. So you've got to move back until you're mature enough. And Jesus said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. He says, you don't understand in the, in the kingdom of God, you've got to learn something from this child. Because unless you become like a child, not childish, unless you have the humility and the openness and the sincerity of a small child, unless you learn to have that, you can't even get in there. In other words, guys who have been training, you need to learn something from these children. But with the attitude, well, they're children, we can't learn anything from them. God doesn't seem to know that. He'll move through whoever's open and sensitive. So my point is, in terms of our children, we need to learn to treasure and to value them. Not just as gifts God's entrusted to us, but we can learn from them. That's why we have them in here during worship. Many churches I've been, most churches, they don't even come into the main sanctuary. And the one I really want to focus on is our youth this morning and the time we have left. What God really opened my eyes to. I began to see statistics or shocked me. And this was several years ago. 94% of the, of the young people that have grown up in church, gone through teen church, and then graduate out of teen church, never come into adult church. 94%. We're not talking about people that we've gone out on the streets, encouraged to come in, and somehow we haven't kept them. We're talking about babies, young people, third graders, fifth graders, seventh graders, and then on them that we've had. We've had the opportunity to impart something to them and 94% of them don't see any reason, any purpose, any value, any connection with the main service. We failed. We failed. We failed. It's not because of lack of programs and I'm not even talking about here. This is not just here. This is universal. We bought a way of looking at our teenagers, at our young people. We bought the world's way of looking at them, of segregating them, and when we segregate them, guess whose hands we've segregated them into? And all the things your mind thinks of, my mind already thought of. Yeah, but they, this, you know, can't learn this. Yeah, but and all, and God answered every one of them. He says, why not? Where'd you get that idea from? Well, that's the way I've always... Oh, that's that method. 
Show me that in the Word. So I said, Lord, show me the Word. He says, a child shall lead them. Isaiah 11. Look at what Jesus did. Jesus wasn't excluding. He was including. Say, Pastor, what are you saying? The end of February, those of you who are not parents of teenagers may not realize, but we've changed our youth service. It's now on Wednesday night. They're here and here part of the service. Why? Because we have things to learn from them. We have things to Well, what if they get bored? Then that's, that's the spirit of God's... The problem is a heart connection. I have people say, well, what about the attention span? They've got plenty of attention. We all attend the attention span doing what we like, video games, you know, playing with our phone. No attention span problem with that. The problem is a heart connection. Is a heart connection. Is a heart... That's a problem most of us have. Just that we're too sophisticated to be obvious about it. Our young people are very direct about things. They see things. They confront us with truth. And we don't like that. We like to... Well, you, when you're older and you've learned a little more, you know, and there's truth in having the blend of the older and much more mature who've been through things. Say, well, it's going to, you know, just wait a little while. It's not quite as critical as you think. But we all hang together with people and say, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Don't, it, you know, it's not as critical as you think. And then we never confront anything because we need young people saying, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And one of the reasons we like to separate them is we don't want to deal with that. And that's a way for God to speak to us. So I have something to say to you young, you young people, our teenagers here. First of all, on behalf of this church, I can't speak for other churches, I want to apologize to you. Because God dealt with me by saying, the problem isn't the program, the problem is the attitude that we have. The, and he said, it started with me. I had to repent of my attitude towards your teenagers. I didn't love you. It's just, I was not, I'm more comfortable in my mind teaching adults. So to me, I was not comfortable teaching you, so therefore that's easier. But that's not God's way of doing things. I found out just because it's not comfortable doesn't mean I can't do it. In fact, when I step across that comfort boundary, I find there are all kinds of things I can do I didn't think I could do. I found I could play cops and robbers yesterday with my my kids, and I didn't think I could do that, or whatever the game was. Hide and go seek, whatever we're running around doing. I found I could do it, but in my mind I didn't think I could. So I stand here on behalf of the adults of this church and I want to apologize to you but the way we've seen you, the attitude we've had towards you. It's not your fault, it's our fault. We're supposed to lead you. We're supposed to set an example for you. And on behalf of the adults of this church, I ask you to forgive us. Because some of the things you're dealing with right now are a result of the fact that we have not done this earlier. And we didn't do it out of purposely. We didn't, it was ignorance, but it still has had that effect. And I've met with, with Kurt, and we've talked about this. We're in total agreement on this. This is what we're going to do anyway. But because this is what God's way, this is God's way of moving. Now, does that mean we're going to have the children here? No. They're in here for praise and worship because there's things that they can learn. There's things that we can do with them. But the attitude we have to have towards them. See, it's not the program. It's the attitude we have. It starts with... Because you will communicate to somebody the, what you see inside of them. You can say all the right things. Oh, we love you. You're such a great teen group. You're such, doing such marvelous things. But if the, they can feel the attitude in here because that's what you're communicating. On the other end, if you have the right attitude, you can make mistakes and say, well, you know, I missed it here, you know. But if you have the right attitude, that's what you're going to communicate. So I'm saying this to the adults of this congregation. I'm challenging you, and I believe with all my heart, this is by the Spirit of God, we've got to change our attitude towards the young people of this church. If if you're a parent of teenagers, you've got to change your attitude here and at home. If you're not a parent of teenagers here, 
We still, we're part of one body. We're dwelling together in unity. Together in unity. Because that's where the anointing, that's where the blessing. To our young people, I embrace you as part of the service. We're going to begin to change some things and do some, I know, do some things that will involve you. And I've had people say, well, does that mean they're going to be ushers and things? I don't know what that means. I'm not concerned at that point. I'm concerned with the attitude at this point. Because we can do all the nice things. I mean, we can have teenagers doing ushering and things like that. And that's nice. And that communicates something. But if we don't change this, if we don't start to think in God's terms, if we don't change our attitude, you can do all the nice things in the world and it's still not going to work. This is why evangelism hasn't caught on here yet. Because we've learned to do the programs, but it hasn't caught the heart. And that's going to come by the presence of God here. Another thing is, I believe with all my heart, we're going to begin to experience things in God here that at least in this church we've never experienced before. I desperately want our teenagers here. And I will end with, oh my goodness, with this story. Our two oldest children, when we were living in Oklahoma, they went to a school that was in the, in the church. And the classrooms were around the church. And there was a morning, that, I think it was fifth graders. One fifth grader went to her teacher and said, uh, I really feel like we should go and pray in the sanctuary. And the teacher was willing to listen to the child and set aside the agenda. And said, well, let's just go pray. What happened is some other classes began to join. And pretty school, the whole school's in there praying, interceding, and, they don't, and things are going on. That was a day in 1981 when a gentleman tried to assassinate the president. And I believe with all my heart that fifth grader was sensitive enough to the Spirit of God pull that school in there to pray. And God used it, may have been going on many other places, to save President Reagan's life. Because he's the first president elected in a, in a, in a year beginning with a zero since, since, since Abraham Lincoln that did not die in office. It broke a curse. But he was tried to kill him. My point is this. There were children sensitive to the Spirit of God and there were teachers and adults open enough to recognize when God was moving through that child or through that teenager. And I could tell you many other stories that came out of there. We just don't have time. We need to ask God to help us to change how we see our young people. Not just to treasure them, but to treasure them as part of us, part of the body. They're the newer part of the body. They bring us freshness and energy and perspective that we old fogies lost sight of. On the other hand, young people, we've been through things so that we don't react as quickly as you may react. And I suggest to you by the Spirit of God, we need each other. You need the experience and the perspective that the older members here have. And we older members need your vitality and your freshness and your way of looking at things as right and wrong and challenging us. We need that desperately. We need you. So bear with us in this time. You may sit through messages and say, I don't know why I'm here. Just trust. Just trust God's doing something here. And God wants to impact your life, young people. And He wants to use you to impact us. I believe with all my heart that what God's going to do here is going to be very much, the youth in this church are going to be very much a part of even starting it. And we thank you, Father. We just come to you right now. And thank you, Lord, for your grace in our lives. Father, when we're wrong, we need to admit to you that we're wrong. We need to be sensitive to recognize when you're changing our way we think so that we can line up with the way you think. 
And so, Father, I come to you now as the pastor of this church and repent that we've not taken our young people seriously enough as part of this body here, as something to, some, as young people who can contribute and can grow and mature just as we're growing and maturing. That we don't have it all together either. That we need them and they need us. We thank you for our children that you've given to us, Father. We thank you that they are the future, but not just the future, but they're sensitive to you. They're open to you. Father, we ask you to use them in whatever ways we're doing things and thinking and of attitudes that are not in line with your ways and purposes. Continue to open our eyes to see them. And we thank you for your mercy and grace to make the changes in Jesus' name.